Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. All right, join me in James chapter 3 this morning, verse 1, page 978 there in your pew Bible. We're still in the book of James, got a few more weeks here, and then uh, we're going to spend a few weeks on uh, uh, probably taking us uh, from around a homecoming into near, near uh, Christmas. We're going to be spending at least four weeks, maybe six weeks, on uh, doctrines of the faith. In a previous staff meeting, prior staff meeting, it was, I was encouraged to take us down some key doctrines of the faith, and so we're going to do some I spent about four to six weeks on what we believe in particular as Southern Baptists and how it might encourage us in our daily walk. So that's just around the corner. I hope it'd be fun, exciting for you. I've already framed in four of the sermons, which I think will probably birth two more. And so I'm excited about that. And it's hard to imagine that we're thinking already about the holidays and what would be coming at Christmas sermons. And so those are kind of rolling around in the back of my mind have begun kind of thinking about where we might be at Christmas. So uh, be in prayer for your staff as we're, uh, we do plan and we do work uh, toward a purpose and a goal. Uh, James, we've been in James, and just to kind of re- remind us and to refresh our memory, and I'm grateful for uh, Dr. Pitts, uh, really, we, we called him Saturday uh, to ask if he could preach, and that was a pretty short notice. Uh, and then uh, I'm think, thankful that Logan contacted me and said, hey, brother, I'll step in on Wednesday, and I appreciate him. Uh, doing that, and then uh, TJ was uh, on standby for today, uh, but I texted him yesterday, I said, I think I'm going to try to make a go of it, and uh, so uh, I'm here today, grateful for that. Uh, we, just to remind us, James has, is talking about the characteristics of spiritually mature Christ followers, and the reason we have books like this is because God wants us to understand the expectations He has upon His children, how we're to live and to conduct our lives as we move through the course of living. And, and, and being sick this past week, I realized life is kind of short. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, there, there was a time when uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. Matter of fact, I called Stephanie in, I think it was on a Monday or Tuesday, I said, this is what I want you to do if I'd pass away. And we were, thank you, Myra. Because I felt so bad, and I wasn't quite sure. And I'm, some of you may have been in that situation. I, and so we walked through, you know, and here, here's where this account is, and here's what you need to do with this money, and you know, you know, the kind of conversations you have, and, and it helps you understand really the brevity of life. That we, we're not here long. We're really not. That we might think that we're old when we're sixty or seventy, but really, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a puff, a whisper of smoke. Scripture tells us we're here today, gone tomorrow, we're fading grass, we're just a, a whisper of wind. And so how we live life in that moment, in these moments that we have that are really so short and such just whispers of life, it's important that we live life effectively and intentionally. And so we have books like James that sometimes step on our toes, and today he does that, but he wants us to understand what it means to be a spiritually mature Christ follower. If we think back to James chapter 1, if we could distill James 1 down, he tells us in James 1 that, that, that spiritually mature believers are patient in trouble. If you could just distill chapter 1 down. Chapter 2, he, if we distill it down, James says that, that spiritually mature believers practice truth. And if we could distill James chapter 3 down, 
he would tell us that spiritually mature believers have control of their tongue. So real, three, three real simple ideas that, that if we're to be spiritually mature, we're patient in trouble, we practice the truth, and we control our tongue. And a pastor once told, uh, was once told of a church member who was a notorious gossip. And so the pastor tried to steer clear of anything confidential when speaking to that church member. But eventually a church member came to him and confessed that, yes, they were a gossip. And that they felt like they, they had come under, under tremendous sin, that they had been spending most of their day on the phone or on social media sites just sharing tidbits of information to any and all who would listen. One day this church member came to the pastor and said, Brother, I feel convicted of my sin of gossip. And my gossip is hurting me. It's hurting other people. It's getting me into trouble. It's getting other people into trouble. And I want to make things right. Now the pastor had had conversations with this church member. And so they knew, he knew that they weren't exactly sincere. And so he asked him, well, what do you have in mind? And the church member said, well, what I want to do is I want to just lay my tongue down on the altar. pastor thought for a minute. said, you know, I don't think our altar's long enough. <laughs> and he let them just think about that. James is writing to Christian people really just like us. We are all, every one of us in this room, are prone to share tidbits of information to all and any who will listen. Some of us are more prone than others. But James is writing to Christian people, people just like us. And he was writing to Christian people that apparently had trouble controlling their tongues. And he had, if you think back to chapter 1, he had just told them, Now, folks, I want you to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because the reality is, he says in chapter 1, verse 26, is that, that the believer who can't control their tongue is really not a religious person. They're not spiritually mature at all. And so it tells us in, in chapter 2 that believers must talk and behave as though we're already facing Christ in judgment. Now if we think about ourselves standing before Christ in judgment, we're really going to control the things that we say and that we do. Today we were on the way to, to church to worship this morning and we were in a little bit of a hurry. We'd left just a little bit late and I was moving at a rapid pace down Gene Snyder and I approached an unmarked police car from the rear. And I told Stephanie, I said, oh, that's a police car. And I immediately slowed down because I was around about 78, 79 in a 55, which where the construction is. But uh, normally a, 70, a 65 mile an hour zone. And we were approaching this police officer. I said, oh, I need to slow down. She said, how do you know it's a police officer? It's an unmarked car. I said, well, it had those two little lights in the back window. And so I knew it was a police officer. So I slowed down and he got off at another exit. When we know that the one who can judge us is around, we behave differently. When we know the one who, who can convict us and throw us in jail is around, we behave just a little bit differently. And I can tell you, if I hadn't seen those little lights in the back of his car, I'd have blown right past him because I would have been ignoring the judge. James says when we don't control our tongue, we're ignoring the judge. When we don't control the things that we say and the way that we say them. We have to understand, he says in chapter 2, that we need to live as if we're already standing before the judge. That he's already right there. Because in reality, Christ witnesses and sees everything that we do, everything that we say, every thought that we have before we think it. Every word that's on our tongue before we say it. He's already aware of it. 
Now, that helps us understand something about the power of speech then. The power of speech is one of the greatest powers that God has given to human beings. I want you to think about this for just a minute. How powerful is this tool in our mouth? Now, think about some of the things that you can do with your tongue. This morning, today, corporately, we have praised God with our tongue. We've prayed. We've laughed. We've fellowshiped together. We've told stories together in our Sunday school classes. We've lifted up our voice in communal prayer, in communal songs. We preach with our tongues. We lead people that are lost to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ with our tongues. And those are wonderful things. We've had a wonderful time together already this morning. In my office this morning, one of the songs that came over the the station that I was listening to was surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I just wanted to sing that as loud as I could in my office because even in there I could sense the presence of the Lord already here and I was grateful. We could do some wonderful, marvelous things with the power in the tongue that God has given us. But with the same tongue, we can tell lies. With this same tongue that we've been praising God with and singing and preaching, we can harm another person's reputation. With that same tongue, we can break a person's heart. Now that's some power. And God has given this awesome power to human beings, people just like us. With our words, we have the ability to influence others, to do great things or to do bad things. And yet, we take the the power that's in our tongue, the ability that's in our tongue, we often take it for granted. Now, to impress upon us the the importance of controlling our speech, James knows that, that we need to be guided and led. And so he helps us understand the consequences of our words by talking about the bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder on a ship or fire and a poisonous animal or a fountain and fig trees. And so he uses these six things to help us understand the tremendous power and responsibility that's in our tongue. So let's listen carefully today in James chapter 3, verse 1. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers. So apparently they wanted to be teachers. My fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now that's a reality. We all stumble in many ways. Or we all sin and we're all tempted in sin in many ways. We all falter in many ways. And we know that to be true. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Well, we know there's no perfect people. But if they are, they're able to keep their whole body in check because they can keep their tongue in check. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Now it seems that the people in James' church. Remember, he's writing to the Roman and Christian Jews who have been scattered across the Roman Empire because of persecution. 
So there, he's not writing to a church in a little town. He's writing to a, a geographical region. So these are people scattered all over uh, that part of the world. And apparently the people in that part of the world, the Christian believers, they all wanted to be teachers. They all had something to say about the Word of God. They all wanted to teach the Word of God and be leaders and be influential in their churches and in their communities for the sake of Christ. But James says, oh, maybe that's not the place where you all ought to be because teaching and preaching and being a leader in spiritual position is not for everybody. He had to warn them that most should avoid teaching because people who teach fall under tremendous responsibility that comes along with that role of being a teacher. Because those who teach the Word, Scripture tells us, will face stricter judgment. And James implies that here. So teachers have to use their tongues to share God's Word, and yet with these same tongues that we share God's Word, it's easy to commit sins of the tongue. And so James is kind of rolling this all out here in front of us. He lets us know that, that teachers have to practice what they preach. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy to get up and say one thing and to do something else. I mean, think of the damage that can be done by teachers and preachers who get up and do one thing and, and teach one thing and teach a particular theology but live a different theology. I mean, whose spiritual life is not on par. They can really do a lot of damage. But teachers aren't the only ones who are tempted. Teachers aren't the only ones who sin. He helps us understand and we have to realize that every Christian has to admit that we all stumble. Every one of us in this room. All of us stumble. In many ways, we're lifelong limpers. All of us walk with a cane in a lot of ways. We need to lean upon or rely upon Christ and the Word of God. We're limpers. The sins of the tongue seems to be kind of at the top of the temptation list for believers. And James points out here that the person who's able to discipline and control their tongue give, gives evidence that they can control their whole body and they prove that they're spiritually mature. Now, James is trying to build a case for us here. He's giving us the pros and cons and examples of what not to be because he's working towards what we should be in the later part, in the latter part of this passage. You probably heard the phrase or read the phrase that loose lips sink ships. That's a war era phrase. People who would get on the radio and share too much information would tell the enemy where they are. And loose lips would sink ships. Well, in truth, loose lips wreck lives. And James is helping us understand that a person might make an unguarded statement might say something that, that would, they would force themselves to suddenly find themselves that they're in a position where they need to fight for the things that they said. And the tongue is forced to defend uh, the body itself because of what it has said. And so James chooses a bit and a rudder to help us understand how we can guide our tongues, control our tongues, and to avoid wrecked lives, hurt relationships. And he chooses a bit and a rudder. And he gives us two things that are, that are very small in comparison to the, to the larger vessel or to the larger uh, animal at, at large. And even though they're very small, a bit and a rudder, they can lead these two powerful things, a horse and a ship. They exercise great power, just like the tongue. The small bit enables the rider to control 
a horse of any size. Small horses, medium horses, great big gigantic horses. They're all controlled by the same size bit. It's small, but it can control a horse. A rudder enables the captain to steer huge ships, can change direction, can change course with that small rudder. Now, the tongue is a small part of our body. I mean, it's small compared to a lot of other parts, and yet it has the power to do and to accomplish great things. And so he gives us the bit and the rudder to help us understand that any references things like power and wind, currents and waves. The bit overcomes the wild nature of horses. The rudder can overcome the winds and the waves that would drive any ship off course. And it can keep them on course. And he says this to help us understand that the tongue in our mouths has to overcome some strong forces. And that's the truth. Particularly, and I'm not talking about in the area of eating or drinking, just in the area of our speech. We have to overcome some strong forces. See, we have an old nature at work in us. That old Adamic fallen nature that we received from Adam and Eve. And that old fallen nature in us that sin nature, it wants to control us and to make us sin. It does. Satan still uses, even though we're saved by grace and we're under the hand of God's mercy and protective love, we still have that sin nature in us that we have to fight with and battle with. And Paul says we have to tame it, to dominate it, like an athlete. And it's a battle sometimes. That old nature wants to lead us, to control us, to make us sin, to lead us to do things and to say things that we shouldn't. And the truth is there are circumstances around us that would make us say things that we ought not to say. And you know what that, what that feels like when someone cuts you off in traffic or if you smash your hammer, your thumb with a, with a hammer. You understand that there are circumstances that can make you say things that you probably ought not to say. And it can happen. In reality, there, there's sin on the inside of us. And there's sin on the outside of us in the nature of Satan. Because he's roaming around seeking who he may devour. Placing pressure upon us from the outside. All seeking to get control of our tongue. And that means that, that the bit and the rudder have to, must be under the control of, of the strong hand. And for the believer... The core relation here is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ controls our tongues, the things that we say, the slips of our tongue, when Christ controls our tongues, then we don't have to worry about saying the wrong things. We don't have to worry about saying the, the right things in the wrong way when He controls our tongues. And that's what, Paul, or what James is trying to help us understand. That the bit and the rudder have the power to direct, which means that they affect the lives of other people. And so we should never underestimate the guide that we give by the words that we speak or by the words that we do not speak because it can change the course of our life and the course of other people's lives. And so James warns us. He says that, that the tongue can lead, but it can also destroy and you got to be careful about the way as a believer, particularly, that you use your tongue because your tongue can literally destroy 
other people. And he gives examples of fire and poisonous animals. Look in verse 5. James says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And we know what that's like. Athletes do it all the time. Grandparents do it all the time with their pictures. Talking about their children and grandchildren. I understand. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small, by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. The tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. A world of evil. It corrupts the whole body. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire. It is itself set on fire by hell. In other words, hell's what lights your tongue up. The fallen nature, sin. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed. And they have been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now that's what you've got inside your mouth. You've got a world of evil. You've got trouble. You've got fire. And you've got deadly poison inside your mouth. And you're a child of God. You've prayed and confessed Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You've accepted Him into your heart and you've surrendered to Him. And yet you still got that going on in your mouth. And so James issues these warnings. And we know what fire can do. We've been watching the fire sweep through California, Southern California, Central California. It's horrible. Some of those fires were started by, one of them was started by a lightning strike. But the rest of those fires were started by a small spark, carelessness. Homes, lives, businesses, all, whole families. Whole families caught in the fire in their cars, in their homes have been lost. James says our words can start fires. Big fires. In some churches, including the one that James wrote to, their church members who can't control their tongues. The result is destruction. But let them move on. Let them be replaced. And the spirit of harmony and love just seems to fall upon the place. Tongue's dangerous. But like a fire, let that tongue heat up and it can heat things up. A hot head, a hot heart can lead to burning words that we'll later regret. And fires, they burn and they hurt. And our words can burn and hurt. If you think about some of the things that have been said to you, I bet some of your most vivid memories are about words that have been said to you that were so hurtful. And the person who spoke them to you may even have spoken them to you with the intention of hurting you and harming you, maybe breaking you. And yes, we remember the kind words too, and James talks about that in verse 12. And we'll get to that. But right now he's talking about the hurtful words that burn. And not only that, but like fire, it spreads. It's like cancer. 
the more fuel you give those hurtful words, the faster and the, the farther that those hurtful words spread. It's like gossip. It just goes and goes and goes. And a person's entire life can be injured and destroyed by the tongue. And here's the thing about the tongue. Time does not correct or heal the sins of the tongue. Time can't take it away. Because once a hurtful word is said, we might forgive and we might be forgiven. But people won't forget. Because people never forget the way you made them feel. And that's reality. Guard our words, James says. We may confess our sins of speech, but that fire can keep on spreading. And as that fire spreads, just like what's going on in California, James says that it destroys. He says the words that we speak have the power to destroy. Now God gave us the ability of speech for none of these things. He doesn't intend for our speech to be hurtful and harmful and destructive. He intends for our speech to be encouraging, particularly for other believers. I mean, our own words, they may not have caused wars. You may have never wrecked a city. But our words can break hearts and ruin reputations. And if we're not real careful... Our words can even usher some people into hell. I remember when I was about 11 or 12, had a family relative come up to me. We were at a family gathering. And they were saying it in jest, but I never forgot it. I'd just gotten in trouble. And they said to me, pulled my chin down, and said, you're the black sheep of our family. You know, I never forgot that. Here I am, 53. That's 41 or two years ago. I can see them looking in my eye. I can hear their voice. We don't forget, do we? James says, don't do that. Don't do that. He tells us that our tongue's like a dangerous animal. It's restless and it can't be ruled. It seeks its prey. It pounces. It kills. He even says that some animals are poisonous. And some tongues spread hatred and hurt like poison. And the deceptive thing about poison is that it's a secret thing. And it works slowly until it eventually kills. I mean, how many times has um, some malicious person injected a bit of poison into a conversation? And they hope that that injection of that poison into a conversation will eventually spread and get to the person that they wanted to hurt. But how many people did it poison along the way before it got to the person that they wanted to hurt? As a pastor, I've seen poisonous tongues do great damage to people. I've sat in rooms and counseled with people and families. How many Sunday school classes, entire churches have been hurt because of a poisonous tongue. Would you turn hungry lions or angry poisonous snakes loose in a worship service on a Sunday morning? Of course you wouldn't. 
You would never do that. You'd never back up a truck to that sanctuary door and unload poisonous snakes. You would never back up a truck full of lions and turn them loose on this sanctuary. You'd never do that. But you might with your words, what James says. Because our words are just as dangerous as poisonous snakes and vicious animals. And so he reminds us that unruly tongues can accomplish the same results as dangerous animals. So he reminds us, though, that animals can be tamed. He teaches us that the tongue has the power to delight, has the power to heal, has the power to spread love and peace and harmony and joy. With your same mouth that you praise God, he said, you speak curses. And he tells us this and makes us this comparison so that we won't do it. Instead, he says in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? That's a rhetorical question. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now we know what fountains do. We've, if you're older, you have probably drunk water from a fountain or from a spring. And you understand that when you go to that fountain or that spring that you expect to find cool water that will help you stay alive, that will refresh your thirst. And we, we, we need water. Not only for drinking, but also for washing, for cooking, for farming, for a host of other activities that are necessary to life. And he uses an example of water because water is life-giving. And our words can be life-giving. They don't have to be a burning fire. They don't have to be a poisonous animal. If we'll bring them under control. Now here's the reality. It's sin for us now to know this and then proceed as normal. If we are accustomed to allowing hurtful words to spew out of our mouth, you're now aware today that those hurtful words are like poison. They're like a a vicious animal. They're like a burning fire. James says, no more. Get that under control. Just like a, a small bit can control a great horse, and a small rudder can control a great ship, then prove that you're the child of God, that you're a spiritually mature person by controlling that small part of your body and then proving to the world that you're under the hand and the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that water cleanses. Did you know that the words that come from your mouth can help cleanse and restore most wounds? It can help to sanctify people. It can help to encourage people to be strong and to be bold in the Lord. And our our words ought to be like a river that brings life to everything it touches. You have that power in your mouth to bring healing. So James issues a warning. He says you can't get salt water and fresh water out of the same fountain. You can't get two kinds of fruit from the same tree. It doesn't work that way. We expect the fountain to flow with sweet 
water at all times. We expect that, that grape vines would always have grapes and that, that fig trees would always bear fig trees and that olive trees would always bear olives. He's telling us that nature produces after its kind. Scripture says it another way. From the abundance of the heart, the tongue speaks. That means that if it's coming across your tongue, if you've got fire coming across your tongue, if you've got poison coming across your tongue, then it's in your heart. That means the problem then is not our tongue. It's a heart problem. Yes, the smallest but largest troublemaker in the whole world is our tongue. The greatest restorative power in the whole world is small, but it's our tongue. See, our tongues don't have to be a troublemaker. They don't have to be poisonous. God can use our tongues to direct other people toward Him and to live godly lives, to delight them and to encourage them in the struggles of life. It's a little part, but it has great power. And as our instrumentalists come on, I challenge you today to give God your tongue. Give it to Him today. Say, God, I give you my tongue. And in giving you my tongue, I'm giving you my heart. Because I know that from the abundance of the heart that my mouth speaks. And, and Father, as I look at my life, I've been saying unkind things. That means I've got unkindness in my heart. I've been saying mean things. It means I've got meanness in my heart. Father, replace this heart of stone with a heart of clay. As we stand, I pray that you would ask God to make you a blessing to other people every day with your tongue. Let's stand together.